and welcome to the Game Pit. My name's Sean, and we'll be talking about tabletop gaming. Hello, my name's Ronan, I'll be with Sean today, and this week's episode is a Picking Over the Bones episode, in which we discuss some games which we've been playing recently. Sean, what games will you be discussing today? Well, today I'd like to discuss Quarriers, Upon a Salty Ocean, and Dungeon Run. What about yourself, Ronan? I'll be talking about Carson City, Power Grid, and Maui. Shall we crack on? Yes, please. which is from Plaid Hat Games and designed by Mr. Bistro. Yes, he goes by the name of Mr. Bistro. Mr. Bistro has worked on Summoner Wars, some of the factions, etc., and a couple of games I don't really know anything about called Song of Deeds and Glory. Dungeon Run is a dungeon crawler, essentially, but with a twist. I'm going to insult everybody's intelligence by going through the ins and outs and in detail of dungeon crawlers, this is a pretty simple example of a dungeon crawler, but what I'll run through the basics of the game. You start off by choosing your character, which are formed of the usual type of character, mages, warriors, clerics, etc. Each player has two actions, and any number of three actions per turn. Your actions comprise of move, where you can move to the next tile, placing it if it hasn't been explored or placed yet, much in the Castle Raven laugh style. Escape. Um, if you're in a tile with a monster, you can roll a die to escape if you don't fancy fighting him. Battle, of course, you can fight a monster on the same tile. Quip, where you equip your heroes with weapons and armour that you have or treasures that you've found. But the main thing about this one is it has to match your class, so a warrior can't wear a cleric's bra. The next one is Search. This is where you look for your treasures and artefacts. Anyone that remembers Hero Quest, where literally every two steps that you took, you search for traps, treasures, and secret doors. Very similar. Advance. This is a level-up mechanism, where you learn a new ability. You trade in treasures and encounters for a training marker, and you get one aspect of training and some cards to do some cool stuff for you. There's three actions, you can use any number of these. Disarm, this is for traps obviously. Assist, this is where it becomes a little bit interesting. If agreeable, your opponent can be assisted by your player, helping them to slay a monster, and you get a bonus for this. You can also sabotage. Obviously the opponent doesn't have to agree to this, otherwise they would never agree and it'd be quite a pointless mechanism. You can sabotage an opponent who's fighting a monster, but if they still manage to defeat that monster or take out the trap or whatever they're doing, you will take a wound if they are successful. The free action is also rally. Every time you kill a monster, disarm a trap or assist another hero, you rally and you remove a wound from yourself. That's the basics of the game. Now what you do is you move into the dungeon, killing monsters, finding treasure, upgrading your hero, until a tile is placed that awakens the big boss monster at end of game scenario begins. The end of game scenario is you must kill the boss, obtain the special treasure that he is holding, and that gives you a powerful boost, and you must make your way back to the dungeon entrance with the special treasure still in your possession. Your opponents will try and stop you and take the treasure to, to the entrance themselves. So it becomes a race to the entrance with the first person 
out with the treasure in their possession being the winner. Ronan, I know you've played this a few times. What are your thoughts on it? My first thought is Mr. Bistro. <laughs> What's poor Mr. Bistro done to you now? He's done nothing, but I'm just going to say Mr. Bistro. You may call me for the rest of this section Mr. Delicatessen. Okay? I will try to, but I don't think I can pronounce it. <laughs> Mr. Mr. Greasy Spoon for you then. I'll just call you Dell instead. <laughs> right. What do I think? I did play this game and tell highly varied results. About a third of the games I played of it were fantastic. They were knockdown, down, stand-up, hilarious games where every player had developed to some degree, everyone had got some good items, and in a very quick spirit pace of time as well, you're talking about less than an hour for this first section where everyone goes around, explores the dungeon, can level up, can get items, and then it all kicks off once you get the, uh, the Summoner Stone. A third of those games were great. Everyone was involved. There's a cage room. That's what we call it, the cage of death. There's a room where you can't make escape rolls out of. So if someone goes in it... If anyone else comes in, they're going to have to fight to the death until they can get out. It's kind of a false way of setting the game up, because if the person with the stone walks in, they're setting themselves up to just get attacked one by one by one. But it was the best fun we had, because then the game had to come to a finish. What you find with some of the games is there's no incentive to attack the person with the stone, because they've got their extra power. If they've been able to kill that boss, this has been very sneaky, it's likely they're quite powerful. So if you attack them, you're going to take a kick in, so... Why would you want to do that? You take a good beating, you weaken them to allow everyone else to come and snipe in. Mm, so too many of the games, I'd say more than half the games I played, it didn't have that exciting ending. It was all a bit of an anti-climax. That's pretty much every game that I had of this. Now, I played it a number of times and I never got that fantastic, exciting, heart-thumping race to the entrance that you obviously had a couple of times it just became a little bit of a procession to me once uh, one person had got the summoner stone it just became a case of i thought you could almost work out exactly what's going to happen you're going to try this they're going to do that i'm going to counter with this you could almost predict every time exactly who was going to get out with the stone i think there was one game where it was in doubt for a few minutes but then it quickly became obvious that the strong character that was built up from the other side of the board would make it to the entrance before the person with the stone and then just beat them up and take the stone off them. Find that the entrance into the game is okay, it's fun. It's nowhere near as good as the likes of Castle Ravenloft in terms of just dungeon crawling and enjoyment of that scale. But it's fun, it's okay. I like the combat mechanism where you throw a number of dice and the monster throws a number of dice and you can choose whether to block or take a hit in order to hit the monster back. I like that dynamic. There was a couple of cool treasures, a couple of cool rooms that did uh, nasty or nice things to you. It's okay. Going in was okay. Going out just became a bit boring. I think it's interesting you mentioned Castle Ravenloft and the other D&D games, Rash of Long, Legend of Drizzt, all the rest of it, because... I actually think that this game suffered because too many people had played those games beforehand. It's very similar superficially in that you're turning over tiles and monsters come out and they're AI driven. It feels like you're playing a co-op, so people tend to play it as a co-op. But it wasn't. It was a competitive game all the way, and certainly there are certain characters at least who you had to play and you had to be an absolute whatever 
to play them successfully, they sneak the goblin who he could just follow different hero and, and every time they did something or there's a mechanic there where you walk in, that's your first action and you fight a monster. If you defeat the monster and it leaves a treasure, you didn't have time to pick it up. And if Sneak was with you, he could just pick that treasure up. There's also one of the magic using characters had this kind of teleport all the goodies to me, the bling bling power. And if they stood on the tile, they could bling in all the treasure to them from the surrounding tiles that had been revealed by the other adventurers. That was an interesting power. That These are the games that were fun when people were willing to go out, be horrible to each other and go, yeah, well done, you killed that monster. Hmm, this is a bit unfair. That treasure's mine now. That was when it was fun. I think that everyone was too into co-op mode and therefore weren't being quite horrible enough a few times. I am going to rag on this game a bit now, but I did like it. Here's another thing, I think. There's not enough chances to level up, and that takes what should be one of the main mechanics out of it. You said it got interesting when people's characters became powerful. It was far too easy after an hour of playing for someone just not to have had a chance to level up. Not to have played badly, but just to have walked off, either been stuck following other people into rooms so they never had a fight, or because you're rolling those dice for the encounters every time you enter a room, there just were no encounters. They had no chance to defeat monsters, no chance to get experience points. What do you think to that? Well, that very thing happened to me when, when I first played in the Your Good Self. I had one of the magic users, and the first couple of monsters my magic user unearthed were hard as nails and really difficult, wounded me, knocked me over, took me out of the game for a turn. When I did finally manage to beat them, the treasure I got wouldn't suit me, so you can have a run of bad luck that literally takes you out of the game. I sat and watched you guys having fun while my character was just lying on the floor. And yet I still nearly won the game because I was able to take the stone off somebody because they died when the monsters killed them. Yeah, I just felt... It was one of those... I bought the game off the back of that because it looked like it, you, you guys were having fun. But the more I played it, the more I realised that the exit has never been fun for me. It was close to being a good game. Let me just say something. This is what really put the nail in the coffin for it. I like Plaid Hat as a company, they seem to be a good company, they seem to communicate with their fans, and they take fans in as playtesters, they seem like a good group of people, right? I don't want to have a go at them. But very soon, after this game came out, and I bought it, and I was starting to play it, they announced that Dungeon Run 2 was coming out, which was going to fix the problems with Dungeon Run. Now, if ever there was any hope that I was going to keep this game in my collection, that's when it went. When the people who have made the game don't have enough faith in it to be able to say, yeah, we're going to get behind this. This is a great game. Okay, there might be some balance issues. Here you go. Here's some more tiles. Or here's this. Or here's that. We're going to make it better. We're going to help you make this game better. Because it's close. It is close. There, I have had some real, real fun games. I mean, great games of this. But for them to turn around and say, oh, we're just going to bring out Dungeon Run 2. Now, I believe it's going to be compatible with Dungeon Run. The problem I have, of course, is that if Dungeon Run doesn't work, if I bring in Dungeon Run 2, the bits of Dungeon Run still aren't going to work, are they? So am I going to pay for two games just to try and have one game that works? No, I'm not. And the fact that you have so little faith in your own game, I'm sorry, I'm not going to have any faith in your game. Yeah, there was definitely a period when um, Dungeon Run appeared all of a sudden on mass in, in mass trades and auctions, etc. And I think that was probably around the time the Plaid Hat decided that they were going to bring out a Dungeon Run 2. I fully agree, probably not the best way to go about fixing the game. So, uh, final thoughts, Mr. Rice. Sorry, Dell. <laughs> I tell you, I loved it sometimes. I absolutely loved it. I had some great times. I mean sitting down and laughing for an hour and a half playing this game, pointing, swearing, abusing each other, the way I like to play certain games. So it has got a soft spot in my heart. I do think it's a good game. I find it really hard to rate because 
on occasion, it was, uh, you know, five or a six, not that great. On occasion, it was like a nine. It was so much fun. There's a really good game in there somewhere. It just isn't in this box. So Dungeon Run, I like you. I see. I'm even wary to play it again. Whereas some of the other games we'll talk about today, I'm like, they're mere games. I play them with Dungeon Run. I'm like, no, because it's frustrating. Because if it's not one of those good games, I'm just going to remember to when it was great. You know, you've always got that comparison. So sorry, Dungeon Run. You did go. I did trade you away. You weren't good enough to keep, but you have got a special place in my heart. For me, I just grew tired of waiting for the game to become good. I thought there was a good game in there. Bought it after playing it, so obviously I had some faith in the game. I just grew tired of waiting for that one good game. Obviously, you were lucky enough to have a couple of those, and, but I wasn't, and I just, it bores me. And again, it was traded away on the back of that. That was our take on Dungeon Run. game is called Maui. It's a 2007 release and it's from designer Adrian Dinu who has designed two other games, one of which has 27 owners and the other one has got one owner on BoardGameGeek. So it's nice to see that his mother is a user on BoardGameGeek. The publisher is Face to Face Games. It's for two to five players and it takes about 75 minutes to play. Now this game is themed around the discovery of Easter Island by Polynesian tribes and the story of how the development and subsequent apocalypse really on that island happened. It takes you through three different epochs in the development of the story of Easter Island. The first is where the tribes arrive and there's lots of wood and forests and food. It's very bountiful. And the second is when things start going a bit wrong. What appears to have happened on Easter Island is they deforested it quite heavily and they used a lot of the natural resources up and then suddenly resources started becoming scarce. And then into the third epoch in which the Dutch are going to turn up and Easter Island is going to be discovered by Western Europe. This game, you're going to hear, it's very much mechanically like a Euro. But unusually for this sort of a game, what the designer's done is bent those mechanisms around the story that he wants to tell of Easter Island. And the fact that each player is their own tribe and they're all going to be forced to fight over scarcer and scarcer resources. And that, for me, is probably one of the best selling points of the game. So how does it play? The first thing with it is, it's called the Birdman phase. All that is, it's a bid for start player. But there's a good little story as to why it's called Birdman. Apparently the person who made the decisions and was a bit of a leader in Easter Island around this time was called the Birdman. And you earn that accolade by diving off a cliff and swimming across a shark infested bay. So what's going to happen is, everyone starts with some cards and put them in the middle and then you take your hand away. Whoever's put the most cards in don't worry about the value, just the most cards is going to become the Birdman. It's actually very important to get a start player in the game, and hopefully as I go through the other four phases, it's going to become clear why. The second phase is called the Epoch phase, and what this is, is this is a card drafting. You're going to lay out cards that are going to provide either events, or they're going to give you resources, they're going to tell you how people are going to move around later on in the game, and they're going to give you a chance to mess with each other, to mess with the resources, to, to limit the resources available on the island and hinder your fellow players. And you're going to lay out as many cards there, it's the number of players plus one. Then the Birdman gets first choice, 
of cards, which is one of the reasons why being Birdman is important. And then whoever bid second most is going to get second choice and so on. Then what's going to happen is you're going to take turns laying workers onto spaces on the board. Now one thing to say is the board is really graphically plain. If you see photos of this board, you're not going to be interested in it at all. It doesn't catch the eye. It's very functional. It's got some simple black line grids on it and two or three icons. It's got a really scary picture of a whale. It's a whale, I think, as imagined by 17th century sailors, that kind of ferocious, pinky, brainy looking thing. Anyway, it's horrible. There's three spaces to put your workers on. Four, if you manage to build a boat. There's the palm forest. There's going to be a certain amount of wood available each turn. The amount of wood available depends upon those epoch cards that you laid out in the epoch phase. Some of them are going to have a palm tree on, number of palm trees on there. That's how much wood is available. So never more than one more than the number of players. And often there's going to be less than that. So you've got the forest available. And when you place workers there, you place them face down so no one can see the value. At the end of this phase, when we go to the resolution phase, as it's called, for each piece of wood that's there, if that piece of wood is uncontested, you can leave those workers face down. So you just get the wood. Woods are going to be used for boats. They can be used to make your Maui's, which is how you score points in the game. If it's contested, everyone flips over those workers, and you add up the value of the workers, which is one to three for each one that you've put in there. They're just little discs with a number on, and whoever's got the highest value of workers in there is going to get that valuable piece of wood. Ties, that's sorted out by the Birdman, another thing why Birdman is important. Then the next place you can go to is the fields, where you can get some food. You're going to have to feed all your workers and there's only two places to get food. One, again, is that boat, as I said, which you're going to need that wood to be able to build. Most of the time, however, you're going to have to go into the fields. When you place workers in there, they're going to provide you as much food as the value, and you put them in face up. So if I put a three-level worker in there, they're going to provide me enough food to feed three of my members of my tribe. If you don't feed your tribe, they're going to die. Don't get too attached to the members of your tribe. Don't give them names. Don't give them backstories. The last place you can go on the island itself is the volcano. It's called stone carving, and that's where you're going to go to build the Maui's. There's those big statues of heads that everyone associates with Easter Island, the ones that are put around the coast and face out to sea. No one really knows what they're for. That's what you're going to do in this game. And again, you put your workers face down. At the end of this work phase, in the resolution phase again, you're going to have a choice on this one whether you wish to turn your workers over. If you choose to turn your workers over, you add up the value of them, and that's the height of Maui you may build there. If you have one piece of wood to use, if you've got that wood, you decide to turn over your workers, you add them up, and you just take a marry of that height in metres. That's basically points. If I've got eight value of workers in there, that's going to get me an eight metre Maui, and that's going to score me eight points at the end of the game. So that's kind of the, the worker phase and the resolution phase all put together then. When you resolve the fields and the ocean, you're going to work out how much food you have. And just to emphasise this point, if you don't have enough food for the members of your tribe, so if I have a three and a three in the fields, and I've got nine members of my tribe, well, I can only feed six of them. I'm going to have to take three away. They're dead. And it's not that easy to get new members of your tribe out. There's some kind of culling of the herd going on. You're probably going to get rid of some ones because they're not as good as the threes. And if you ever stopped and thought for a minute about that, you're getting rid of the less efficient workers, the lame, the old, and the young. But... Anyway, let's move on. Let's not dwell on how horrible the game is. The last phase of each turn is just a refreshing phase. You're going to be able to take Rapa Nui cards. Those are the cards you're going to use to bid on the Birdman. Well, what happens is some of your workers must come back to you. So they must come off the board. So you can't constantly reserve spots on the board. That's called the work pause. I don't know why it's called the work pause. It's a bit of an awkward name. But those workers are going to come back into your pool. You have a chance to birth new clan members. You must use those Rapa Nui cards, the ones that you used to bid for the Birdman at the beginning of the phase. 
if you hand a couple of those in, you're going to be able to get a worker back. Then you can build a boat. If you've taken one of those boat cards at the beginning of this round, and they only last for one round, and you manage to get wood in this round, you can build a boat, which is going to be able to provide you with more food, as long as you keep, keep hold of it. In that third epoch, there's a card called the Admiral Rogovine card. That's the arrival of the Dutch. And what's happened in the game is you've gone from this bounteous island in which there was lots of resources, and those resources have got scarcer and scarcer, and then the Dutch turn up. I'm not an expert on the Dutch at Easter Island, but I'm going to guess that's where things go from bad to worse, and certainly that's where the game ends. What happens then is everyone adds up the total height of all the Mary statues they've built. So if you've got an 8 metre, 6 metre, 4 metre, sure, that's why it's 18 points. You add the number of your clan members that are still alive. So if you be able to feed them and keep them alive during the game, that's going to get you a point each for them. That can be quite important. That can definitely sway the game because there's not a lot of points being scored, as you can hear. And then any wood that you haven't used is worth two points at the end of the game. So, Sean, that's an overview of Maui. It's, again, quite an obscure game, quite an unusual game. Is there anything you'd like to ask about it? As you said, it is quite obscure. I tried to do a little bit of research on it, and there's not a lot available. The one word I'd like to shout at you is Birdman. What a fantastic piece. <laughs> this fella, he's not as cool as the Stone Age man, but he's pretty cool. He's got his arms wide and he's shouting to the heavens, and that bit is massive as well. I'm not sure if you can see in component photos. It's way overproduced for the rest of the game. The cards are okay, they've got some art on them, they're fine. Your bits of discs are very kind of normal, the board's very plain. That Birdman is just a start player marker. Fantastic. I think we've got a bit of a theme going through the podcast already of great start player markers. However, I must say that the Stone Age starter marker will have to go and slap him down, because he is definitely a pretender to the throne. If you don't have a beard, you're just not in the running. That's the end of it. <laughs> what I could glean from uh, various research I did on this game, that it seems to be a really nasty game. I mean, not that players have any option. I mean, I, I heard it described as having a knife fight in a phone booth. You've just got to go with it, and you've got to be as mean as you can, otherwise the game will just leave you behind. What do you think on that? There's no doubt about it. Perhaps some of the interactions, which I didn't really go over there, I can, I'll talk about now briefly. That draft of cards I was talking about in the epoch phase, some of those cards are cool, they just give you some good things. A whole lot of them are bad news. For example, in the game, there's three in which you can destroy a Maui. Now, given that that's the main way that people score, that can be horrific. And if you're going to be playing this game with people who are going to avoid making choices like that, who are not able to look at this game, accept it on its own merits, and say, I'm going to take that card to take away that statue you've just spent 45 minutes building that's your only points in the game. If you've got people not willing to do that... Or people who are going to get upset by that sort of interaction in the game, don't play this. It's probably best to describe it beforehand. It is mean. You're going to be able to take away people's points. Now, that sounds like it could be very frustrating, but I think there are ways to mitigate it. You need to know that you don't commit to just one big statue. That's why in the volcano area, if you leave workers in there, as long as you can get wood, you can build yourself lots and lots and lots of smaller statues. You can do it every turn, as long as you can keep the workers there and feed them and what have you. So if you were trying to build one or two big statues and left yourself wide open to that card, well, then you're in trouble. There's also cards, for example, where you can burn someone's boat. Now, at the beginning, there's really the field's there for food. There's enough of them. You can feed your workers, and not too many are going to die. It's, it's in that kind of you know, bountiful phase. As the game goes on, there are lots and lots of soil erosion cards. 
which people are going to be forced to play because there's so many of them that there's no way you can avoid playing them. Certainly if you're last in the Birdman bidding, you're just going to have to play them. And what that does is you put a soil erosion marker on one of the fields and you destroy whichever worker was on that field. I think it goes back to the person rather than actually dying, but it takes it out of play. That field is now no longer available. So it shrinks the amount of food. And when it happens again and again and again, suddenly boats look like really good options because they're guaranteed food just for your tribe. No one can kick you out. No one can play a soil erosion and, and kick your farmer out. There's not a big fight for it. Of course, then there's this burn boat card, and that's just bad news. If you spend a couple of turns trying to get wood and then you've got the boat card and you build it and someone turns around and burns it on you next turn, well, you're going to have to be in a certain mindset to be able to play this game. In all, the game comes across to be really quite depressing. I mean, you start off with this island, there's a tribe on this island with not a lot of resources available. Slowly, as you ravage this island, the resources become less and less available. You start attacking and killing the rival tribes, and then the end shot is the Dutch arrive and probably wipe everyone out. Just to let you know that this was thought about by the designers, because apparently the prototype, the raid mechanism, was actually called cannibalism. So they've actually thought about it and made it less depressing, and it's still a depressing game. Well, let me tell you what the raid mechanism is, by the way, and actually... Yeah, if they called it cannibalism, it would make more thematic sense. And I didn't know that, and it does make sense now you've said it. What happens is, some of those cards, those Rapa Nui cards, which you can use to, to birth more clan members or to bid for the Birdman, are a dark colour. If you are short of food when you're feeding your clan members, you can raid another clan by playing one of those cards with another lighter coloured car and you can take off the worker of another player equal to the value of the lighter card you played with it and that counts as one food. I'm going to guess that there was cannibalism on Easter Island. Maybe something they don't teach in your nine years old in a history class. But if they put it in here, given that they've stuck to the story all the way through and they haven't pulled any punches, apparently people on Easter Island ate each other. There you go. Just one last bit. I have been reading up about the card draw at the beginning of the game. A lot of people on Board Game Geek have taken umbrage at the card draw, saying that it can take players out of the game unfairly. Um, Where do you stand on that one? I think that that's most likely to be those cards which affect the Maui's, the nasty cards, if you like. What I say to that is that you have to accept this game on its merits. It's not a nice, friendly game. It's not a game in which you can be able to slowly build up your own engine and get more and more and more efficient. You need to grab resources while you can and cling on by your fingertips. You need to accept that, otherwise you're not going to enjoy the game. In terms of getting smashed up by those cards, it's not random. It depends upon the Birdman bidding. So if you think you're in a position where you're a little bit vulnerable, maybe you've got the tallest Maui on the island or what have you, win the Birdman bid or concentrate on trying to win the Birdman bid. Take cards which provide you with more cards because you know how many cards you're going to draw. It says so on the card you take at the beginning of the round. And then don't use them to birth new clan members. Use them to protect what you've got. It's a fight. The game is a fight. It seems like a Euro when you first start playing it, but it's not. It's... A nasty scrap over too few resources. So, moaning about it being random, no. There's a mechanic there which you need to get on board with. It's the Birdman bid. If you don't want to get smashed up by those cards, then bid high. Well, this is definitely a game that's uh, intrigued me, for sure. I really want to play the game. I probably should need to keep away from the caffeine, just so that we don't end up killing each other, should we play it. 
But uh, one thing we haven't really touched on is what do you think of the game? Do, do you enjoy it? Is it a game that will last in your collection for a long time? It's a game that I want to carry on playing. It's unusual enough that I actually find it very hard to give a judgment on it because you think it's one thing and it turns out to be something else completely different. I can't remember having played a game like it and I think that to get the best out of it, I'm going to have to play it a few times with the same players with people who are willing to have this fight and to explore the mechanisms. They're very simple mechanisms, but the way you should play it is not very intuitive. It's not this engine building game. It's the engine is falling apart. How much can you grab for yourself? I think it definitely deserves a wider audience. People are looking for different games. There's lots of clones of games. There's so many games coming out that do fairly similar things. You know, if I've got Descent, how many other dungeon crawlers do I really need to play? If I've got two or three worker placement games, do I really need the next one and the next one and the next one? Would you know, if we're looking for something different, see if you can get hold of a copy of this, because it is different. Not so much mechanically, but thematically. And again, the theme is so strongly interwoven into those mechanics that I think it's definitely worth looking at. There's one thing also I wanted to say. At the moment, there's a lot of attention around a Kickstarter for a game called Tomorrow, in which everyone plays these world leaders and the population of the Earth has got too big, and we're having to make decisions on how to get the world's population down to 70 million. I think that's what it is. So you're basically killing lots of people off, and you're trying to keep your people alive. Do you know, I think that six years ago, Maui did that on a very much smaller scale and didn't get any attention, and I think it deserves some. Brilliant. Thank you. And thank you. I'd like to talk about the game called Quarriers, which is from WizKids Games and designed by Mike Elliott and Eric M. Lang. Mike Elliott designed Star Trek Fleet Captains, which is another big WizKids game, and Thunderstones. Eric M. Lang designed Game of Thrones and Call of Cthulhu card games, and also who's on the Chaos and the Old World team. Quarriers is billed now as a dice-building game, very much in the mould of deck-building games, but obviously with dice. Each player starts the game with 12 dice, comprising of 8 quiddity dice. Now, quiddity is the currency used in the game. It's present on all of the dice in the game. It's how you buy or make ready your dice. You also start with 4 assistant dice. Assistants are the base-level creatures in the game. This, for want of another term, is your starting hand. On the table, the cards are laid out in a very Dominion Stroke Thunderstone style, with the difference being that the card is for reference only, and you'll be actually collecting the corresponding dice which are placed next to the cards. On the table, you will have three basic resource cards, which are the Assistant, Quiddity, which we've already spoken about, and a Portal, which is a spell that gives you more dice. Then you separate the remaining cards into spells and creatures, dealing out three unique spells, because there are spells of the same name, but of different power levels, and seven unique creature cards, for the same reason as the spells, because there are cards with the same name, but of different power. This is known now as the Wild. A little bit about spells and creatures. Spells give you bonuses to enhance your attack, defending or scoring. Creatures, they do your bidding and they're used to attack, defend and score. Each creature has an attack strength, a defense strength, a level, which is the cost, and a burst, which is a bonus on each dice. When you're playing, you must have three specific areas for your dice. 
it's very useful to download player map that you can print out just to separate your areas. Now the areas are ready for the creature dice that you have ready to attack, ready to defend, and ready to score for yourself, and spell dice that you have ready to cast. The next area is active. These are for the dice that you draw from the dice bag and have yet to use. And then the last area is used. This is for the dice you have spent. They stay here until your dice bag is empty and then they move back into your dice bag. Each turn is separated into six sections. The first one is you score. If you choose to score any of your creatures or all of your creatures in your ready area. The next is draw, where you draw six dice from your dice bag and you roll them. And these are placed in the active dice section. Then you ready your spells or creatures which means you pay the cost for the level of the spells or creatures and put them into your ready area so they are now ready to attack, defend or score for you. The next one is attack. If you have creatures in your ready area and your opponent has creatures in their ready area, you can attack them and try to remove them from the game, which obviously is going to stop your opponent scoring in phase one of their go. Next is capture from the wild. This is where you buy your dice and bring them into your bag so that you can use them at later levels. And last is you move all your active dice from the active section to the use section. One other important rule that you should remember, and I managed not to remember it on a couple of occasions, is that every time you score a creature, you can remove a dice from your collection. This is a way to take the lower value dice and unclog your hand. There is a predetermined target score to win based on the number of players, and the first to reach it is the winner. Now, Ronan, I know you've only played this once, but what were your impressions of the game? This game made a huge impression when it came out at Gen Con 2011. I had been looking forward to it from those initial reports. I was itching for it. I was waiting for it to come out over here in the UK. But then the reports started dribbling through that maybe there wasn't too much to the game. So I was very much mixed going into playing it. I wasn't sure how much I was looking forward to it and really what I was going to get. What I got was a quick, random game which is fun. I'm not sure there's a terrible amount of depth to it, but that's okay because not every game has to be massively deep. I can see why it made such an impact at Gen Con, because in that atmosphere, when everyone's chatting and laughing, it's perfect. If you've got a couple of beers in you, you're not going to be sitting there thinking, trying to work out how to play Aura at Labora at that stage, are you? But you're going to be enjoying a game like Quarriers. What's your thoughts on that, Sean? Well, absolutely. I mean, I do remember the hype. The hype, to be honest, the hype's continued to build. There's now a Quarriers World Championship, and it's one of the more... God spare us. (laughs) <laughs> I take it you won't be entering anytime soon. I was taken by the hype myself. That's why I bought the game. My first impression was that the build quality wasn't great at all. It looks very pretty from a distance, but when you get up close, and they promised to rectify this in the second edition, which has recently come out. The dice quality, some of the printing on the dice is difficult to read. Some of the numbers aren't correctly on the dice. I just felt a little bit... Not cheated, but a bit disappointed at just the quality, given that this was the second run of the game. Yeah, they're not great quality dice, but I didn't expect them to be great quality, because you get an awful amount off them for the amount of money you spend. And how many do you get with the base game? It's over 100, isn't it? Off the top of my head, I want to say 136, but that's probably completely wrong. Anyway, with regards to those dice and gameplay more than quality, the other things I've been hearing is some of the dice are overpowered and there's an imbalance to the game. Again, it seems a bit silly when you're talking about a quick dice-rolling game, but overpowered to the point where if you get them first, you're going to win. What's your thoughts on more powerful dice? 
Definitely. I think the dice that you're referring to is it's the dragon dice. Yeah. If you get a couple of dragon dice early doors, or not even early doors, at any stage during the game, the likelihood is you're going to march to victory. And there's a couple of other dice that you have to be lucky that they're in with the dragon that can nullify the dragon, but more often than not, the dragon tends to be out there on his own. Uh, by far the most powerful creature and a definite game winner, which will take something away from the enjoyment. Okay. You said it's a dice builder, and probably most people are more used to deck builders using cards to build a deck and what have you. Do you think there's any advantage in them using dice over cards? No, I just think it's a quirky change. I don't think it really changes the game. I suppose you get the element where what you've got on a card, it stays on the card. That's it. With a dice game, I suppose you've got the element. You've, you might have that creature, but you've still got to roll it. So it gives you that unpredictability and, yeah, a bit of fun. Because, again... Everyone loves a bit of dice rolling and it changes it up a little bit, but not enough to make it any more than a gimmick, to be honest. Do you think it's any more fun with more players or is it just added downtime? Yeah, I've never played it with more than two players. I'd like to give it a go with three players, but I'm not breaking my neck to get it played with more players. In my mind, I think it's going to be a bit messy with three players. This is a game that I really, really wanted to like and I still want to like. I want to play it again. I think there's that game in it somewhere. I think that there's a game in it where you go, oh, that was fantastic. It was to and fro. You got that and it really scuffered me and I went for this and I, I managed to get back at you. I think that's in there. But the games that I've had have really been somebody gets an early lead and that person wins. A couple of quick fire ones for you. Yes. Any interest in the expansions? Yes, because I'm an addict. You have got problems? I have got problems. I like dice. Dice were what drew me to the game in the first place. I'd like to see how they change it up. Now, I think one of the expansions, I think it might have been Quarmageddon, put the new rules that are in the second edition, so I'm not sure how relevant that would be to me now, seeing as I've got the second edition with the new rule set. But definitely, it's dice, man. I want dice. I love dice. Bless you. Can I have the name and address of whoever keeps giving them the stupid quir names so I can go and punch them in the face? No, it's very funny. You again need oh. help. Oh. Okay. <laughs> You're quackers. Last thing to bring up with regards to quarriers. They are using this system, I believe, and they're going to skin a theme onto it. And there's a Lord of the Rings dice building game coming out. Do we need it? Is it going to be any different? Are you interested? Why has Lord of the Rings got me pasted on every single thing in the whole world? I have a couple of questions to fire back at you about that. Do I like Lord of the Rings? Yes. Do I like dice? Yes. Will I be interested in this game? Yes. There you go. I get a cookie. Are you going to expand on it at all? It's something I think I'll have a look at just because of those reasons, because I have. But I'm on the edge of actually going to the point where I think it might be a little bit too much with the dice building now. Quarriers hit a niche in the market that a lot of people enjoy. I think it's time to just stop tacking things onto things and calling them dice building. Okay, so final verdicts on Quarriers. For me, it's queer, it's very shallow, it's fun at the right time in the right company, but I'm not going to build a game night around it. For you, Sean? For me, it's a game I want to play again. I still want to like. I still hope that there is a fantastic game in there, and I'll be giving it a few more goes before I make a final judgment on it. Well, and there you go. That was Quarriers, as discussed by myself and Ronan. Right, I'm going to talk about a powerhouse of a game, Sean. 
I'm talking about Power Grid. A 2004 game from allegedly two to six players. I think probably towards the higher end of that player count is best. Takes around two hours to play. And this is number seven in the Board Game Geek rankings. Nine years after it was released, which suggests it's got something going on for it. The game was designed by Freedom and Freese, he of the green hair. Power Grid, it's themed, rather strangely, around creating a network of cities to which you provide power. You're going to be getting yourself some power plants, spending money for them in an auction. You're going to be spending money to develop a network on a board. Now, the board, there's lots and lots of them around, but let's start off with the basic one. It's Germany. It's divided into different areas. You take out different areas depending on how many players are playing. And then on that board, you're going to be able to place houses by paying for them and paying costs. And then using those power plants you've got, you're going to burn up some fuel, probably, in order to power those cities, earn some money, buy better power plants, develop a bigger network, etc. This is going to play until someone has built 17 houses in a network. And then whoever can power the most houses, not who's built the most, is going to win the game. Let's go through it quickly how it plays. There are five phases to each round. The first one is determine player order. Again, a little bit of a theme perhaps this week, one where player order is very important and one of the unique aspects to the game. The way you spend money is always negative to whoever is allegedly first in player order. Quite often they're going to be last in player order, but nominally they're first because they're first in the next phase, which is the auction phase. The way the player order is worked out is whoever has built in the most cities, got the largest network, doesn't matter how many are power, just the largest built, they're going to be the first player, and so on downwards. Any tides are separated by who's got the highest ranked power plants. Then there's going to be an auction for power plants. Now there's a set of plants available for purchase, and there's a set of plants which are likely to come in once those plants have been bought. But that might not happen, the market works a little bit funny. But there's four up anyway for auction, and the first player can choose one or not. If they choose not to, then they're out of bidding for the rest of that round, they're not going to get a power plant this round. Eventually, probably, someone's going to choose a power plant, and it just goes round and circle around the table, everyone bidding, eventually someone's going to bid the most, and they're going to take that power plant. The power plant comes in a variety of rankings, from 1 to 50, they also come in a variety of types. What's important on there is the type of fuel they use, how much fuel they use, and how many cities they can power. You have got some green ones there, you've got the ones that work on wind power, which are free, you don't need any fuel for them. However, the vast majority of them use coal, oil, garbage, or uranium to power, the nuclear ones. Why is that important? Because the next phase is where you buy resources for your power plants. That goes in reverse player order. And the way the market works is, when a player buys resources, they take them out from the slots for a certain price, and then leave behind ones which cost more money. Being first in this phase, the third phase of buying resources, is advantageous, and that's going to go to the nominal last player. So everyone's going to buy resources, you can't build up too many, you can only hold on each power plant enough to power that power plant twice. Then we're going to get into building, and this is where the map really comes into the game. The game has got three different phases in it, and linked to that, each city on the map has got three areas. We start in phase one. In that phase, only the building area which costs 10 is available in each city and only one player can go into each city. So you're gonna start somewhere and that's gonna be the start of your network. And when you choose to expand from there, each connection to cities has got a price on it. So if you want to jump from one city to another, you have to pay that connection price as well as the build cost in the next city along. 
In phase one, it's going to be 10 wherever you go. Once phase two kicks in, which happens when a player is built in a certain number of cities, that kicks in. And what that does is it opens up the second area in each city, and they're going to cost 15 to build in. And there's a card that's going to come up in the power plant stack, which kicks in phase three, which is pretty much the end game. Then all three areas in each city are going to be available. So three players are going to be able to go into each city. Again, paying connection costs. And the third space in each city is going to cost you 20 money. That's the building. The advantage there to the last player who's going to go first is they've got more scope. They've got more area to choose. There's more spaces available to them. They might be able to block their fellow players. If you do get blocked in this game, it can be a right pain to get out of. And the last one is just some bureaucracy. You're going to swap things around. New power plants are going to come out. The market for resources is going to fill up, and that's going to be important. It fills up at a different rate for each resource. It depends upon where we are in the game, in phase one, two, or three, and also how many players are playing. So another reason why player order is important. During that bureaucracy turn, that's when you're going to power your network. You're going to burn the fuel in the plant. So you might have a plant that takes two coal to fire up three cities, for example. You might have a great one that takes two oil to fire up six cities. You're going to have to build up your money and build up your plants and get better and better plants throughout the game. The number of cities you can power, doesn't matter how many you've built at this stage, how you can power, that's going to give you a certain amount of money. It goes up by the number of cities you can power, but the amount it goes up decreases, so it becomes less and less efficient. But you have to power them because that's how you win the game. The end is, whatever round someone's built in their 17th city, their network gets that big, whoever can power the most stations wins the game. Sean? Well, I'll start with the box. The box is terrible. You would never in a million years pick up this game unless you knew anything about it. It's just some dude standing in front of a power terminal. Are you yeah. not intrigued by that dude? Who is he? Where'd he come from? I don't really care. He looks oh. pompous, and he looks like he doesn't want my money, so I'm passing him by. The theme, what a terrible theme for a game. Let's just cut in there. Is there really a theme? Okay. I mean, there is a theme there, but if you swapped it around for running sweet shops or building an ant colony or any one of a thousand different themes, it wouldn't really make too much difference, would it? Not really, but you can make a better theme than a power grid network. It's all not enticing for you in. The board, a little bit bland for my liking. It's a bit boring. Meh. Uh, you know, I have to disagree. I don't think it's attractive. I actually think it's a bit too busy. It's not always that easy to work out what's going on. And in this game where money, you know, it's, it's very much about efficiency and how you spend that money. Sometimes you can get stuck because you're having to add things up and the numbers are not always that clear. So I, I go the other way. I think it's maybe a tiny bit too busy. So, yeah, Power Grid for me is something that I absolutely love. What a great game. If you didn't know what it was about, I think you would probably walk past it in, in your local game shop. But what an interesting game. Like, we've got auctions going on you've got root building going on but root building done properly manipulation of your various power supplies going on it's just a really great game and much much deserved of being in the top 10 on board game geek in my opinion i agree as much as i like to have a little moan about it here and there and certain little bits of it the reason why you can nitpick on those small details because Overall, as a package, it's just a fantastic game. It's another game, I think, is it the packaging, is it the theme, I don't know. I overlook it sometimes. It's not a game that I go, oh, I really fancy playing Power Grid, or I'll just grab it and take it out and go, yeah, everyone, let's play Power Grid today. But when it does get pulled out, when someone does choose it, boy, I have a great time playing it. It's right up there. It's, it's in my top 20 games for sure. 
Well, well, I'm going to play devil's advocate now. Some of the criticisms, few criticisms, to be fair, levelled at this game. A lack of interaction. Some people feel that there's a tendency to just get on with your move. There's no banter. There's no real interfering with each other in terms of messing around with people's moves. I think less interfering with each other while you're involved is probably best due to the court order. Poor choice of words. And uh, to my probation work, I apologise. They're moving on swiftly. So... This is something now I watched recently. Uh, a Before you move on, can I bring you yeah, to sure. order on that point? If there's a lack of interaction, you're not playing with people who are horrible enough. You should be looking to block each other. Much easier in the first phase than it is in other phases. But you should be looking to jump ahead of someone. Two people closing the door on someone else. That takes out one of your rivals. If you're able to do that in phase one, suddenly they're not a contender. They're out of here. You should be looking to do stuff on the market. If you've got a smaller network, buy power stations that have the same type of fuel as the people who are ahead of you. Why? Because you're going to buy resources first. You're going to make it more expensive for them. You're going to always get them first. Manipulating player is very important. If there's a point where you think you're going to jump further forward, then look to get a power station on one yeah, where the market's not so active in one of the resources. But hell, if I've got a four-city network and other people have got a seven-city network and they're all relying on oil... I'm going to get in on oil, and I'm going to get as much oil as possible, even if I get a horrible, horrible plant that costs me five money, and I can just sit on eight oil on it, I'm going to do it. There's as much interaction as you want there to be. Yeah, you know, there's not direct interaction, but definitely there. And if you don't play like that, you're playing wrong. Oh, that's a fair point, and I actually agree. I've never, I've never noticed any lack of interaction. That might be just because me and you are usually shouting at each other for any game. Okay, well, next up, another criticism I've heard levelled about the game. I'm actually going to give two, and they come from opposite sides. One criticism I've heard on Board Game Geek is talk about people being left out of turns, blocked from cities, blocked from game really for a turn or a couple of turns. Now I've heard the designer talking to Scott from Board Games with Scott and he defended it by just saying, listen, that's the name of the game. You're there to block people. You're there to stop people getting things. That's the name of the game. If you're going to whinge about it, it's probably not the game for you. On the flip side of that, some people uh, whinge about it having to catch the leader mechanism that it's really hard to pull away. And again, I think it's it's part of the game. I think if you want, if you do jump into an early lead, people are going to be gunning for you and you're not going to get away. So, I mean, I've kind of answered my own question, but what do you think about those? To the first point, I think we probably answered it with regards to the interaction question and it's nice to hear that Mr. Freese listens to what I have to say about his games and, and takes my lead on that. Yeah, there is interaction. You can block each other. So some people think there's no interaction and other people whinge because they got blocked out. Like a lot of games. There are times when you can play a game once or twice and just have a bad experience and you write the game off, right? We've all done it. We can see if you get blocked. If you didn't know it very well, especially if you're playing with players who know the game quite well, that could be a really frustrating experience. Again, it's just part of games. Either think there's something in this, learn it and get better, or go, do you know what, it's not for me. Whatever. Every game can't be for everyone. With regards to the second point you made with the catch-the-leader mechanism, I think the whole game is almost a catch-the-leader mechanism. I think the problem is that if you have a bigger network and you're powering more cities, you're going to get more money, and the money is crucial. It's going to let you get the better power plants and buy the resources and expand more. That's most important, really. The more money you have, the more you can expand, and that's how you're going to win the game. But what more can he do? He gives the disadvantage that the first player has to put their cards on the table and bid for power plants first, which often means they won't get the best power plants which will be available that turn due to the way that, that works. It means the first player has to buy resources last, 
So they're going to get the most expensive resources. And it also means you build last. So everyone else will get a chance to try and creep in on the cheaper connection costs and try and block you out or at least make things more expensive for you. The whole game is designed around catch the leader. I don't think it's unfair. I think it balances because when you're in the lead, you get more money. But there's all these things in which you can do something about it. I think people are talking crazy. That's a fair point. Uh, just before we sum up on the game, could you just talk us through a few of the expansions that are available? Because there are quite a few. There are quite a few. I can talk you through one or two of them. The UK and Ireland expansion came out end of last year. Very excited about that. Bought it. Obviously, it's still in the shrink wrap. That's how we roll. But the two expansions I've played recently... I played on the uh, Spain and Portugal map. I think Portugal and Spain is fairly similar to Ireland and the UK in that you can't do nuclear in Portugal. But do you know what? It made absolutely no difference during our game. I don't know what the hell that's about. Playing the Spain map, I just didn't notice any difference. It was just the same as anything. I'll tell you the one map I played on that did make a difference, though. It's the flip side of the basic one you get in the game. You get Germany on one side and US on the other. I played on the US and I played so badly on that US map you wouldn't believe it. I clearly haven't played enough train games in America. Similar to train games I've seen, it's that everything is cheapest on the East Coast, and then you develop across to the West. In that Midwest area, there's huge connection costs. There's a big barrier to break across to get over to the West Coast, where things get, well, not as cheap as the East Coast, but more cheap certainly than that Bible Belt area. I was an idiot. I thought I'd try and be smart and try and take over the area in the middle, but before I'd be able to block everyone, the second phase kicked in. Everyone just built around me, and I was left way, way, way down. I was last by a long way. So the U.S. map I found quite interesting. I made a big mistake. And one other player started on the West Coast and just took themselves out of the running as well because it was more expensive to connect than the East Coast. If we'd both been in the East Coast, it would have made it a lot tighter in there. And then I think it would have got really interesting as to where people were going, who was blocking who, when that second phase happened, I think people would have bang, 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 taken those second areas in cities. And I really would have liked to see how it developed from there. So I would really like to play the US map, but not play it as badly as I played it. Just to sum up for myself, wonderful game. I think that any detraction from it, it doesn't really have a lot of basis. Talking about it now is making me want to play it again, so I'll probably go and do that now. A great game. It's so highly ranked for a reason. I fully agree with it. And go out and give it a try. It's a fantastic game. to talk about Upon a Salty Ocean. Now this is from uh, Geochix IT and Rio Grande Games and the designer is Marco Pranzo. I couldn't find anything about Mr. Pranzo. Looks like he's made in game. In Upon a Salty Ocean you are a wealthy merchant in the 16th century city of Rouen, which is a port city and has made its name and fortune from fishing. King Francis I of France is planning to visit the city, and all the merchants are scrambling to be number one before he arrives. I'm not really sure why, but that's the aim of the game, to be number one. You start the game with a small ship holding three salt barrels, a small mine, and 10 to 16 money, depending on the order in which you start. This is the start that you have to build your empire up and become the wealthiest merchant in Ruin. The game lasts five turns, and each turn is divided into three phases. The first is the event phase, where the tiles are revealed that provide information about weather and environment, like rough seas and pirates. 
which affect your fishing ships out at sea, and changes to the marketplace, affecting the prices of the three commodities in the game, which are cod, herring, and salt. The subsequent tile is also visible, so you can plan ahead. The next phase is the main body of the game, it's called the action phase, and players take actions in turn for as long as they wish, and so long as they have the money to pay for the action. You can actually go into debt in this game. The actions you can take in this round are divided into four categories. A city action is where you buy a building. The city has a number of buildings that can be bought for points or bonuses, including enhancing your saline output, building a larger storage for your stocks, etc. Navigation in this category, you travel out into the ocean and fish or return from your fishing expedition with your haul. The next is a harbour, and you build a ship or move your goods that you can either transfer between ships or move to or from your storage area in the city. And last is the market action. This is to sell to the market or buy from the market. Players take actions. The cost of the action increases using a track on the board. For example, if player A were to go first and take a city action, it would cost zero. But if player B also wants to do a city action, they must now pay one and so on. So as the phase progresses, it becomes more and more expensive to take an action, meaning that eventually all players will pass. Once they have done this consecutively, that signals the end of the round. The last phase is the end of turn phase. During this, the players reduce salt from their mines, as salt is actually needed to transport your fish from the sea into the harbour and keep them fresh. So you will need a salt cube in your ship, otherwise you can't store any fish that you catch. It's worth mentioning that nobody can advance beyond 40 money unless they buy a bank or a bulk in the city. Then, no more than 80 money unless they invest in the sal de coffre. The player with the most money after the end of the game is the victor. Now, Mr. Rice, what do you think about Upon the Salty Ocean? An interesting one, I think. I am, first of all, completely transfixed by how many different yet similar shades of brown they managed to fit onto one game board. You've got brown shore, brown buildings, brown jetties, brown graphs, brown numbers. Everything's just brown. It's very confusing. I look at the board and I have no idea what's what on that board. I get the point where you have no idea what's what, but I do think the board's are right. I think it's quite pretty. It doesn't strike me as a game board, though. I, I get what you mean when you say that you don't know what's what. It's just... It looks like a picture that people have put a few buildings on. I felt like I was stuck in a 16th century matrix. There's just lots and lots of numbers that go up and down everywhere, and they're all in brown. And I'm like, what the hell do they all mean? Nothing wrong with the colour brown, my friend. Well, clearly not. The fish are pink and purple. This just oh. disturbs me for some reason. I feel like they'd be too easy to catch. You'd go out in your rowboat with a hammer, they swim past and you just whack them. There's only for a fishing boat or a net or a pole. Why are they pink and purple? The colour choices in this game really disturb me. Well, because it's a commonly known fact, if you did your research, that cod and herring off the coast of France tended to be pink and purple in the 16th century. Right, it's yeah. A chemical imbalance in the ocean. It's just a bit strange. It's... The game is just not very thematic in any way, shape or form. And the whole brown board takes me away. I don't really feel like we're doing anything. And I don't really feel like town is developing in any way because it doesn't change. And it's just cubes moving across different graphs, which don't really connect to anything, as I said. And then you've got these... It's a real minor detail, these weirdly coloured fish. But in a game that is so disconnected, 
to have them such an odd colour choice, and also there's no difference between them. Pink doesn't mean anything, purple doesn't mean anything. I played it for an hour and a half, and I still didn't know which was which, because the only difference is that their price goes up and down. They, they could be stocks in anything. There's no difference between them. I get that totally. I mean, I'm going to jump the gun a little bit and almost give them my final verdict on the game. I'm going to, I'm going to throw a noise and a word at you. The noise is eh. And the word is bland. That's kind of where this game's coming at me from. Yes, but I don't think it needed to be bland. I think that there's nothing more bland in these mechanisms than there is in lots of other games. They've just taken standard things, like a bit of a stock market, like having to pay more to take an action after someone else has taken that action, like having to develop buildings so you can have more money. These are all kind of mechanics you find in other games, and they've both them together okay. There's nothing wrong. There's nothing that doesn't work. It's just I don't care. I just have no interest. I don't care if I get pink cubes or purple cubes or I've saved money or I... What am I doing? Who am I? I don't feel like Francois, the young fishing boy going out to make his fortune. I feel like Ronan sitting looking at a brown board. And I think this is the company that brought out another game with a very brown board, Rio de la Plata, which I picked up two and a half years ago. I've read the rules three times. The rules seem interesting, and the board is so bland, and it has this same sort of removal from the mechanics that... I've never been bothered to play it, and that's how I feel about Upon a Salty Ocean. I can't ever see myself ever being bothered to play it. I'm, I'm building a bit of a theme in this podcast because uh, I wanted to like this game. Uh, it appealed to me. I read up about it. I actually got it in the maths trade. I traded, I traded something that I owned for it, so I did want the game. I wanted to enjoy it, but I just found my main problem with this game was I felt it becomes a little bit of a follow the leader. You've got to go fishing. I've tried it just buying buildings and trying to score points like that you've got to go fishing now you can trend towards the building side as long as you've got your fish or you can trend towards sticking with your fish and leaving the buildings but you have to really go fish and that just becomes a follow the leader one player puts their salt in their ship the second player goes I want to do that before it gets too expensive puts their salt in their ship the next player takes navigation action out into the ocean to go and fish The second player goes, I better do that. I better go and fish before it becomes too expensive. The third player goes, oh, it's all of a sudden it's costing me two to do this. I better do that. So it just becomes, you go, you go, you go, I go, I go, I go. Just the same action over and over again. Am I right? There's only four actions you can take. There's four categories of action, um, but yeah, they they amount to the same thing. So it's almost patterned what you can do. There's not really a lot of strategic choice. It's almost scripted and... It's one of those, I think, categories of games that I don't like. And it's, you're all doing something similar. You're just trying to eke one or two percent in efficiency out. I much prefer games that have got either interaction where you can mess with things or strategic variety where you can go down different paths. I'm going to try to do it this way. You try and do it that way. The game feels a little bit scripted, I have to say. Yeah, I I definitely agree. Final thoughts, unless you have anything to say? My final thoughts are, if I was sitting down and I was feeling lazy and I had a dead leg and I was in a comfortable seat and it was the right temperature and I didn't have to move and someone put the game board in front of me and taught it to everyone else and moved my pieces for me, I'd play it. Because I've got nothing against the game. But I'm not going to seek it out in any way, shape or form. It's fine. It's an okay game. You know I use the word fine too much when it comes to games. I don't hate it. There's nothing wrong with it. It's just, to quote a genius once, meh. <laughs> and that man was some genius. I concur with you completely on this one. I think, yeah, I would play it. If someone brought it out and said, I really want to play this, I'd sit and play it. 
it wouldn't bother me if I got into a certain action first I'd think of you know what I'm going to win this game because I'm paying the least and there's a few other elements to it like the pirates and the rough seas and stuff that can damage your boats and in Rio de la Plata that came out from the same company there was the natives attacked. It felt very samey to me as well. I know no one's played Rio de la Plata, but to come across the same looking board with similar things, you develop a city, there's a chance things will attack and, and knock some of you down. I actually think Rio de la Plata is the more interesting game, but very similar. That's a fair enough point, and I'm going to go out with just a bland, okay game. I'm not fussed about ever playing it again, but I will if I have to. And that was Upon a Salty Ocean. to the Wild West now, Sean. Yeehaw, Ronan! That's what I like to hear, some enthusiasm. How about a trip to Carson City? Let's go there, my friend. Okay. This is a game from 2009 for two to five players. Takes about 90 minutes, or a lot quicker if you play with a simultaneous variant, which I'm going to talk about a bit later. One of the reasons why I want to talk about Carson City is because I've played this variant, but we'll come back to that. It was designed by Javier Georges. He's a designer with a growing reputation. He also did Trois, the dice-rolling Euro game, which is quite heavy. I played that, I quite enjoyed it. I haven't played it for a while, actually. He also brought out uh, Ginkgopolis, which came out just last year, which we've played. And perhaps one day we'll have an interesting discussion about that, because that certainly stirred up some feelings. Carson City is, at its heart, a worker placement game. There's also some kind of area mechanic going on. And what we're all trying to do is, Carson City's just been founded, we all play, let's call us, cowboy, wide boys, who are going to be building buildings and stealing money from each other, and generally trying to exploit the development of Carson City in order to score points, most points at the end of the game is going to win. The scoring of the points is slightly odd in the game though. So, how does the game work? Well, each round, first of all, there's a choice of personality, which goes in player order. You start with random player order, and then from then on, first person to pass is going to be first player for the next turn. So passing can be quite important, again, to get that first player advantage, choose a personality. There's seven of them generally available. They're going to give you different things. They're going to provide you with extra money, money off buildings, extra guns for gunfights, or very important one is the number one one, which is the sheriff provides you with the one white untouchable cow beeple. The reason why he's important is because the next part of the turn is the cowboy placement. There's a snake of areas across the top of the board where you're going to be able to place cowboys into. In each of those areas, more than one person can go in there and you're going to have jewels to see who can activate the area. And that's one of the unique selling points of Carson City. It's a work placement in which you can have direct conflict with each other. If someone wants to go in and say, score points for the amount of guns they've got, then someone else wants to do it, they're going to have to fight to see who gets the right to that. So the sheriff, why is he important? Because he gets to go first. And again, the reason why I mention this is because in the simultaneous variant, he becomes very important. But whatever area he goes on, he can't be touched. Then you take turns placing your cowboy. You're going to get a varying amount, depending upon which round it is, slightly more as the game goes on. It only plays four rounds in total. 
you're going to place them down and you're going to be looking to build up your guns, which are going to help you in the fights we've been talking about, get some roads, buy some plots of land. Now, there are plots of land on a grid laid out beneath this worker placement area. It starts off with some mountains in play. Everyone gets a couple of plots of land which they can choose and one house with roads around it. It's the start of Carson City. You can buy more plots of land. When you own a plot of land, if anything gets built on there, you're the one who's going to get the resources from it. There's a tableau of buildings available, which go in ascending order. They're all different kinds of buildings. They're basically going to give you income in some way, shape or form, be it from gold from the mountains or ranches like to go in wide open areas, saloons like to be surrounded by houses, wherever it might be. They're going to give you money somehow. They might also give you, again, a bonus in guns. Then there's some chances to get some money. The spaces there for various things will give you money. Even a roll of a dice, you can go for a gamble. Down the bottom is this unusual bit, and that's where you can be able to score points. Now, every turn there are some standard point scoring areas, points for plots of land, points for guns, points for buildings you've got. There's also places to go where you can exchange your money for points. In the first round, there's spaces available for $2 equals one point, up to $5 equals one point. But as the rounds go on, the most efficient ones get covered over. So exchanging money for points early on is good, but it might leave you not able to develop as the game continues, as the best space available by the time you get to the fourth round is just that one $5 equals one point space where you can convert money. Why is that so important? When you chose personalities at the beginning of the round, they all have a cash limit on them. And if you have any money above that cash limit, at the end of the round, you're going to have to give that cash back to the bank. However, at the rather horrible rate of $10 per point. And that's really not a way that's going to win you the game. There are personalities that let you keep more money, but it's definitely something to be aware of. It's odd the way that money equals points a lot of the time in the game. And there's only real very limited ways in which to be able to exchange that in any sort of efficient way. You're also going to get income from your buildings around the board, and this is another way where players can fight each other. If you place a cowboy onto another player's building, you're going to steal half the income. They can try and defend themselves by placing a cowboy there as well. Now these jewels, whether they be on a worker placement space or on a building where you're trying to steal income, is each player adds up, cowboys involved, how many guns they've got from buildings and personalities and from actions they've taken, and how many cow beeples they've got in their actual reserve. Add that up, roll the dice, that's your value. The other person does the same, whoever's got the highest value wins. The person who loses, their cowboy comes back to them into their reserve. So it's not devastating to lose because you're going to be more powerful for next turn. You're either going to be able to take more actions by using more cowboys, or you're going to be stronger for the fights that come up. End of the round, there's a bit of bookkeeping. We do it for four rounds. Whoever's been able to build buildings well, develop Carson City, be mean a little bit to each other. It's not a terribly nasty game, but there is that little bit of direct interaction which makes it a bit unusual. If you've done that well, you're going to win the game and be mayor of Carson City. Sean? Carson City for me. There's definitely elements of the game that I enjoy, and there's elements of the game that I don't enjoy so much. It's one of those, uh, I think there's a problem that affects ambitious games sometimes, and by ambitious games I'm more thinking about games that try to marry a load of different gaming elements. And I think this one suffers because of it. I think there's a little bit too much going on, and I'm not sure that it gels together as one entity. What do you think? Yeah, this is an area we disagree on. I think that whether you were tired or something else was going on, this is one of the games you weren't quite gelling with. I don't think there's that much going on. Honestly, I don't. It's get in there, get good at fights, build some buildings, make some money, get some points. For me, it's a fairly standard Euro 
with a little bit of a twist in that you can try and shoot each other. I mean, you know that I have a mind block when it comes to route building, area manipulation, area building, whatever you want to call it. That side of the game I didn't really enjoy. I quite like the element that it brought that you could actually have a scrap over places and it's not just first person who gets the spot. I like that element, but I just, all in all, it felt like there was just too much happening all around the game and it didn't it didn't gel up for me i didn't quite get it and i've had a problem with one of this designer's other games as you mentioned before the ginkopolis and we will definitely discuss that in the future again that game i didn't feel gelled and it didn't make as much sense as it should have to me i don't think there's any need to tar carson city with the ginkopolis brush let's keep those (laughs) separate I quite like teaching carson city ginkopolis made me cry when i tried to teach it several times Okay, so, yeah, I guess there's a bit more going on than some other games, but I don't particularly think it's very complex. And on that branch of discussion, really why I want to bring up Carson City is because I played the simultaneous variant recently. And in the simultaneous variant, rather than taking turns to place in that top track in player order, as the name suggests, you do it simultaneously. So everyone's boshing down cowboys as quickly as they can, or not quickly, but whoever gets it done first and moves down, who passes first and says, that's it, I've done what I need to do, they're going to get first choice of roles. Now, roles actually become more important in the simultaneous variant. This is a way which simplifies the game. I think maybe you'll like it, because for me, it turns it from a decent, medium weight, a bit of a thinky game, into like playing an iOS, I'm not invested, I don't care, I can't see the strategic depth to what anyone's doing, I can't really follow what's going on, I felt like I was just pushing buttons, and then as they went through that track and resolved the orders, I see what happened at the end. I couldn't predict what was going to happen. Yeah, I'd certainly like to give that a go, and it may well improve the game for me. All in all, I'd like to give Carson City another run anyway, because there's too many people out there that really enjoy the game, and it's very well thought of. And I seem to be, not on my own, but in the minority, definitely. One question I'd like to fire at you, sir. The oversized dice in the second edition, what the hell are they about? I think you dreamt this, and I have no idea what you're talking about. No, there's definitely some a pair of massive dice randomly, with no explanation as to why there is a pair of massive dice in the second edition of this. Now, I know you've probably avoided the second edition because you do have tiny hands and they would look rather big. I think you might have been eating cheese before you went to bed again. And if you need to go for a lie down, you go and take some time, okay? I've never seen the massive dice. Not the first edition, I've played the second edition. No massive dice. Stay away from the medicine cabinet, Sean. Right, if anybody out there knows what I'm talking about, Please help me. I think I'm going mad. I'm sure there was massive dice in the, in the version I played. It's just because you're too big for this world. You just wish there were massive versions of everything so you'd fit in. They don't exist. Well, hopefully somebody out there will help me prove my sanity. But anyway... Okay, so I've played it a few times now, Carson City, since it came out near enough four years ago. I pretty much always enjoy it when I play it. I think it took a couple of games for me to, to really see where the flow was going. I think each game is slightly different. There are variations in how the board develops, in which buildings come out. I mean, there's an expansion out now. I've seen the expansion. I kind of played with it, but not really, which adds even more variety. So each game is slightly different, and I'm kind of starting to find my feet. Being powerful in gunfights is really, really important in it. 
because you can get in, as I said before, there's limited scoring areas which are of any use. You can go and $10 for a point, that's not going to win you the game. The ones which you can get into, there's always going to be fights around them. If you can build up a good strength in guns, don't worry about too much else, really, as I've found, you can win it. The simultaneous variant, which I also want to talk about, not for me. Removed all the depth. I don't play games to get through a game as quickly as possible. I, I like quick play. I will sacrifice efficiency for fun, something we talked about in Alien Frontiers. But I don't want my decisions to be meaningless. That's why I don't like playing board games on my iPhone, because I don't care. I'm not invested. I want there to be interaction. When I put something down or make a clever move or see a clever move, I want there to be a reaction around the table. I want to be able to discuss. When you're playing this, everyone's head down, bang, 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 rounds over. And I can't see what the impact of anything is going to be. So for the normal game, yes, it's staying in my collection. I like it. It's different enough from other worker placement games that it's got a place to stay for me. Simultaneous variant, take it, take it outside and shoot it like old yellow. Sean? Well, I'd like to try the simultaneous version before we do put it down. Not at my house. <laughs> yeah, it's, again, it's a game that I just didn't get. Not that I didn't have any fun playing it, I just didn't get it. We'll definitely give it another go. And again, I'm putting this plea out to you. If anybody's out there, contact us on Board Game Geek or on our own Podbean website and let us know that there is those massive dice and I'm not dreadful. So, for Carson City, there's something suggesting there there might be a minimum level of good looks to be able to enjoy and understand the game. Thank you for listening to us on episode two of The Game Pit. You can visit us on thegamepit.podbean.com or subscribe to us on iTunes. Theme tune, E. Arab.